Hello, and welcome to the ANPT Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast discussion regarding the April 2020 release of the Concussion Clinical Practice Guideline. My name is Maureen Clancy, and I'm joined today by Karen McCulloch, who played a key role in the Concussion CPG workgroup. Um, Dr. McCulloch, do you mind giving a little bio about yourself? Sure. So I've been a physical therapist for a long time, um, worked primarily with moderate and severe TBI for um, in rehab and uh, community reentry programs before I joined the faculty at UNC Chapel Hill. And um, since I've been at UNC, have uh, um, really for the past 10 years or so, have had more of a focus on um, concussion. A lot of my um, uh, clinical work um, and sort of uh, research focus has been on military concussion. And so um, that gave me an opportunity to um, offer that mili military perspective in the concussion work group. Um, and, you know, was joined with uh, a number of other uh, physical therapists across different disciplines um, to be able to hold the CPG together. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me in the discussion today. So my first question is, who made up the panel that um, composed the CPG? Like what was their individual expertise and how did the process of creating the CPG occur? So this process took a really long time. Um, we started, um, it was really more than five years prior to the, uh, the, the CPG being published. Um, and it was a very intentional effort to make sure that we involved physical therapists across, uh, I said, different disciplines, meaning different specialty areas. So um, Ariel Giordano from uh, University of Delaware, who's a sports and an OCS specialist. Katie Quatman Yates, who is now at OSU. Um, who ha has an interest in pediatrics and sport-related um, concussions in kids. Um, Bara Al-Salahin, who's at um, Michigan. Um, he's an NCS and did his PhD work at uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, focused on um, vestibular dysfunction. Um, Kathy Kumagai Shimamura, who's at Asusa Pacific and works with Kaiser. Um, so she's an OCS and NCS and a manual therapist, um, uh, a fellow um, as a manual therapist. Rob Landell, um, who's at USC, who's also an OCS and um, a manual therapist and is well known, I think, for uh, doing courses related to cervicogenic sorts of issues. Um, <clears throat> trying to bridge the neuro-ortho sort of um, issues around that. And then we also were um, aided quite a bit by Tim Hankey, who is, he was really more of a methodologist. He's at Midwestern um, in Chicago. And um, so he offered us a lot of expertise around sort of the process of, um, you know, systematic review and that sort of thing. Um, it ended up taking uh, quite you know, longer than we thought, in part because we needed to kind of decide on what our focus would be with the CPG. Um, <clears throat> when we started, the evidence for uh, 
treating concussion um, more in a rehab context was was pretty limited um, and you know so there was some um, period of time that we were sort of questioning whether it made sense to try and write a CPG and once we decided that yes we felt like um, it was it was something that uh, we wanted to try and do we decided that we would make our focus be on the role of a physical therapist in managing concussion um, because that's um, I hadn't really been articulated very well in the literature or in other CPGs. There had had been, you know, sort of a tendency to focus on, you know, return to sport after concussion. And um, the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation group uh, in Canada that uh, developed a CPG that was really probably the best available broader CPG. Um, talked a little bit about uh, vestibular management, but not necessarily some of the other issues that we thought were important to be considering. And so we wanted to try and meld all of the physical impairments that a PT might be able to address and also make it, um, you know, kind of go across our different specialty areas so that, so we could get therapists to be thinking about, um, people across the lifespan that might have a concussion, not just a sports-related concussion, but, you know, an older adult after a fall or, um, you know, somebody that had been in a car crash where they might have had a whiplash and a concussion sort of injury. Um, so, so that was our, you know, our intent was to try and make it broad, make it focused on what a PT might do. And, um, and, and, then as we were starting to formulate our plans and, and you know starting to review the literature then there started to be a shift away from what had been kind of the the mantra for a long time was that you should you know after you had a concussion you should rest until you're asymptomatic um, and then go back to activity and um, you know that was okay advice I think for people um, to be conservative and prevent people from getting back to um, activity too soon and certainly wasn't important to you know um, raise awareness that if you've had a concussion you shouldn't go right back into the game you know if you're playing a sport that your brain may need some time to rest and you know make sure that someone doesn't have a second concussion and you know really set themselves off on a, a path towards major problems um, but you know there's some people that when they have a concussion they don't get better just with rest and those are the people that you know we as PTs might really be able to help um, so um, you know as the pendulum was swinging away from rest until you're asymptomatic. Um, and now I think people are, you know, considering a shorter period of rest and then trying to start back into sort of gradual activity that's, you know, more your day-to-day -day activity a little bit quicker. Um, then uh, the role of physical therapy, I think, went from, you know, just waiting for a really long time and, you know, having people maybe have very persistent problems um, to, 
starting to see patients earlier and earlier after concussion. And so with all those things that were changing, um, trying to write a document that would be able to accommodate those um, kind of the differences in philosophy that were starting to emerge and the differences in time frame was really a little bit challenging. Um, and I hope we, I think we, you know, kind of made a start at it. Um, and hopefully when the, re the revision happens to the CPG, there'll be better literature to, to guide some of the specific questions people probably have when they look at it as it is now. Did you find in the literature that there was um, a lack of information out there about um, concussions that were like non-sports related or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot that we don't know about um, like older adult concussion in particular. Um, there's just uh, not very much literature to sort of guide specific um, management in those situations. So, you know, I think what we tried to do was characterize um, what we do know from the sports literature, and we know a lot from the sports literature. It's a, a you know, very sort of important foundation, but, um, but it's hard to know exactly how to modify those things if you have someone who's not physically active, you know, who's older or much younger than the typical adolescent population that has been the focus of so much of the uh, the concussion research. So, um, you know, I think PTs are in a good position to, you know, to, to synthesize what we know about um, adolescent concussion and somebody that's, you know, physically fit and is used to exercising and then making some um, you know, kind of educated guesses about, okay, what components of that approach could I apply to, you know, a patient that, that's different in their characteristics, age-wise or activity level-wise. Because um, it's the sort of thing that we do all the time um, with patients across the lifespan. Oh, definitely. Right. Um, so the CPG strongly recommends like patient education regarding what you were discussing before, rest and the benefits of like progressive reintegration of like normal activities, mm -hmm. um, sleep and return to um, safe activity. Is there a recommendation for when a therapist should start seeing a patient post-concussion then? Because a lot of times I think therapists aren't seeing people until they're kind of further out in the process? Yeah, I think, I think what we um, know to be happening, um, you know, with the clinicians that were involved in the group, um, and then, you know, other uh, therapists that we know are seeing patients with concussion, um, is that people are starting to see folks earlier, you know, within, there, there are some clinicians that are seeing people you know, within the first week, um, when someone presents to a concussion clinic, um, you know, having had their concussion a few days before. So, um, and we don't know um, about, you know, definitively what the timing of, um, of intervention should be. Um, you know, I think that uh, 
because there was this rest until you're asymptomatic idea for such a long time that people have um, maybe are concerned that they might do some sort of damage if they start people, you know, exercising too soon. Um, but there are clinical trials that have begun or, you know, like we've done one here at UNC that's um, using sort of an active rehab approach and results of that will be shared relatively soon where, you know, you're starting someone, obviously you're not going to start with really um, high levels of exertion and, and that sort of thing. Any sort of intervention you would do with a, with a, patient post-concussion would follow sort of a stepwise progression that is, you know, commonly used after uh, someone's had a concussion so that you'd have a sense of, you know, how they're tolerating that and, and can make decisions about whether they're ready to progress or not based on, on how they've, they've managed, a, you know, a short out of exercise or, or that sort of thing. So I think um, <clears throat> we tried in the CPG to, you know, it's not, it's not just about the time, but it's about this whole issue of irritability that someone might have. Um, because, you know, if someone comes to see you and they're, um, it's, it's really easy to provoke symptoms with them. They, their symptoms go up quickly and don't come back down um, in, in a short period of time so that, you know, you might anticipate that they're, they're not going to tolerate a lot of activity well. Um, that's part of the reason why we, um, we wrote that article that was in JOSPT um, about this whole issue of irritability. Um, and if you haven't seen that, I think it, it gives a, a way to, um, you know, sort of think about a patient and whether, you know, what they really need is just to figure out how to manage their symptoms um, and, and get them under control a little bit better. Or are they really ready to start um, kind of optimizing their ability to move a little bit? Or are they at a level where their symptom load is pretty low and, you know, they really are thinking about returning to, you know, military active duty or returning to sport and they need to be working at this uh, at a level that's really going to get them you know at that high physical function kind of activity so if you pair the you know that irritability concept with you know that's the, i think that's probably something that might even be more important than the timing um, because you could have a patient that is incredibly irritable that is a year post, you know, um, and you're going to handle their, um, a patient like that differently than someone that's, you know, three weeks post um, who, you know, has a pretty low symptom burden, you know, so, um, so I hope that that irritability concept, which is, you know, commonly used related to pain, is something that's really easy for people just to integrate into um, how they think about a patient post-concussion. No, and I think that makes a good point because I think that we can't always just look at it in terms of like the duration since the concussion. We have to look at kind of like the patient as a whole. Right. Yeah, in, in particular, if, um, you know, so... 
so you start to look at those contextual factors and this is the other thing that there's not really good evidence for this in the literature but we felt like within our group because we spent so much time you know sort of reading literature and thinking about these issues and talking about it and we have you know really skilled clinicians that are part of the group um, we also talked some about um, the, the issue of you know we we know about risk factors that might be things that would put people at risk for having a prolonged recovery after concussion you know so there you know there are things in the literature about that but there's not very much in the literature about um, contextual factors that might actually be protective or help people recover quickly um, and so we also in, in the article that um, I was mentioning before that focused on irritability, um, we encourage people to think about those contextual factors, um, you know, like things like locus of control that people, you know, things that your patients say that, you know, make you think, oh, well, this is someone who really feels like they, they can manage this and their stress level is not high about it. They fully expect they're going to recover and that sort of thing versus someone who maybe comes to session and it has a really long history of anxiety problems and and you hear them saying things that you know I know someone who had a concussion and you know it was three years ago and they're still having problems you know so those kinds of things that we also I think intuitively will hear and think about and say hmm, this is a factor that could make someone recover more quickly or or it might be something that is going to be more of a negative in terms of um, their recovery curve um, so um, hopefully by the time it's it's time to revise the CPG we'll know more about some of those sorts of things too um, because I think there's there's a lot that seems to be shifting, you know, for such, such a long time, people are, you know, just are using this kind of generic list of concussion symptoms. And, and some of the areas where we might offer care are not, um, they're not covered very well in a, in a, a generic assessment. Um, you know, like if someone has motion sensitivity problems as a result of some vestibular dysfunction, there's not really a question about that on your, your typical post-concussion survey. You know, so, so I think that's another area where, you know, we have to think about, okay, what are the presenting impairments and what do we think is driving that and what tools do we already have that we could use to capture those things? And, you know, there's not really good evidence for that yet, but hopefully we as a profession will generate some of that. Right. It sounds like it's a good avenue for people to start to research into. Definitely. Definitely, because, you know, what we ended up having to do in terms of some of the intervention ideas um, is refer to, you know, the neck pain CPG. If somebody presents with kind of a cervical um, complaint after a concussion or refer to some of the vestibular CPGs, 
um, if someone has symptoms that suggest there's vestibular impairment. And, and those um, CPGs were not developed based on people with concussion with neck pain. You know, so we think it's a reasonable um, thing to, to do because, you know, if your patient has neck pain, in some ways, do you care as much about how it happened or do you care about the fact that they have neck pain? Um, and the same sort of thing for vestibular dysfunction. Um, but there's not a lot of research that, you know, so looks at neck pain in patients post-concussion um, or looks at vestibular in patients post-concussion. So, so that's a, you know, there's a lot of room for um, research to be done, I think, in, in those areas. Yes, correct. And I think that is, that's probably why you guys um, wrote that there wasn't a lot of strong evidence to support the involvement of the cervical spine in, the, um, in an evaluation, but it was highly recommended that therapists evaluate this area. And is that kind of just like, because everybody is kind of anecdotally seeing that or? Well, I mean, there are a couple things. So one thing that um, we haven't talked about yet that I think is important is that we, um, we use this term concussive event um, as a concept that we want people to be thinking about. So, um, you know, if it's an event that could cause a concussion, it could cause, you know, injury to the brain, um, the forces that are involved could also cause other injuries at the same time. So it could, you know, you could have this co-occurrence of concussion and whiplash because someone got rear-ended um, or, you know, someone has a, a fall. Um, you know, any, we know that any sort of trauma to the head, that there's um, the possibility that you could also have a peripheral vestibular issue that happens with trauma to the head. Um, you know, so it's, it's um, wanting people to be um, broader in how they think about it and not to think that everything has to be coming from, from a brain injury specifically. So you could have, you know, concussive problems that are driven by the brain, but you could also have things that are driven by injury to the neck and injury to the vestibular system um, that are uh, kind of commingled with a complaint that, that um, you know, is coming from concussion. So, um, so that's um, that concussive event concept we integrated into the description. We, we still named it concussion um, because um, we, we want people to, you know, that whole concussive event terminology is not something that's in the literature a lot. And so, um, but, but we do think that's important, an important thing to be thinking about. So, you know, you could, and, and we did that in part because we think that there are probably people that where con a concussion isn't diagnosed because there's a, you know, it's an older adult, adult who fell and they broke their hip when they fell, you know, and that becomes the focus and nobody sort of thinks about the con that a concussion might have occurred at the same time because they're focused on 
you know, what's going on with, um, you know, the need for surgery on their hip or whatever. So, um, so we want, we want people to be thinking about, you know, they could have a patient come to them that has a presentation for, you know, or a referral for something that doesn't have concussion in it at all. Um, but they should be thinking, well, you know, they could have had a concussion at the same time and maybe it, it wasn't diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there still could be things that we could offer um, knowing that they, um, they may have had an undiagnosed concussion um, that would be beneficial for the patient. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like you might be, someone might be presenting with a primary orthopedic issue, but it could be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, they come to, to you with a complaint of neck pain, but then, you know, they also have some vestibular um, symptoms. So you're going to treat both of those things, right? So. Yes. Yep. Now, the literature up to this point had kind of discussed um, in terms of concussion clinical trajectories, while the CPG is more impairment focused, referring to profiles, the cervical musculoskeletal, the vestibular ocular, the autonomic dysfunction, and the motor function. Mm -hmm. So should we try to start thinking about um, categorizing patients according to these descriptors to facilitate appropriate care? Um, well... You, you know, there are other, I mean, there are a couple of groups that have tried to come up with these subtype descriptors. Um, we felt, felt like there's not a consensus on what those descriptors should be, um, which is why we didn't endorse, you know, the subtypes that John Letty's group at Buffalo describes or, um, the subtypes that that they use at University of Pittsburgh that are you know those are two examples that are in the literature but I don't I don't have the sense that um, there's a consensus that either one of them alone is perfect um, and so so we just decided to go with um, physical complaints that you know we're not you know, there are a number of things that the CPG doesn't do. It doesn't talk about, you know, initial diagnosis of concussion based on sideline testing and that kind of thing because there are other CPGs that, that do that. Um, and it doesn't talk about things that uh, PT would not have as sort of a primary focus in their, in their intervention um, because there are other CPGs that do that. Um, so, um, when we tried to boil it down to the different roles a PT might play, um, we just, you know, ended up with the, um, the cervical piece, the um, vestibular piece, the potential, potential autonomic and exertional intolerance piece because, you know, Letty's group actually has published quite a bit of evidence about that. And it's certainly something that we should be aware of and, you know, be looking at. Um, it could be, you know, most of that, that evidence is focused on young athletes. Um, but, you know, sort of thinking about autonomic dysfunction, what if it's, if that's happening in an older adult, it could end up being a, 
you know, a blood pressure management problem that is more of an orthostasis kind of issue. Um, we don't know that because nobody's really studied that group um, related to, you know, autonomic dysfunction. So, so, but just to have people be thinking about that a little bit. And then we lumped the, some of the functional things into a category where we include some things about looking at dual task performance. You know, that's something that has, has certainly been studied quite a bit in um, the uh, athletes and then also in the military to some degree. Um, but there still is not sort of a definitive assessment that should be used. And, and we don't really know about intervention related to dual task performance and that sort of thing. We don't, we don't have great evidence about that. So, um, so anyway, so we just included functional mobility as uh, the kind of fourth category because it also helps us think more broadly about uh, an older adult, you know, a uh, middle-aged person that might have, uh, have had a concussion where, you know, you're really looking at getting them back to whatever their recreational job, you know, um, activities are that involve physical function in the way that we do all the time. And so, you know, it's just to say, this isn't anything different than you do in another type of patient, um, you know, because it's a concussion, you're still thinking about those same sorts of, you know, functional mobility roles that you would with, with any other type of patient. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I saw that the CPG had recommended like exertional testing, but like you're saying, like not everybody is going to be going back to the same level of activity. Like an elder might right. just be wanting to walk around their block. Exactly. You know, so we kind of need to probably sounds like just put that in perspective to the individual's kind of like aerobic demands. Right, right. And so, so obviously it would be really important to know something about their pre-entry level of activity, you know, and if all they do is sit and watch television, <laughs> then you're not going to, you know, do the Buffalo concussion treadmill test with them. Um, probably you might, you know, do like a timed walking test or something and see if their symptoms are um, exacerbated by that and at what level their heart rate is when that happens and, you know, then maybe work with them on a you know, sub-symptom threshold um, progression of activity or something. Um, yeah, so definitely needing to um, consider who's this person and what was their pre-entry pre level of activity and need for exercise or want for exercise, and then, you know, integrate that into the, the sorts of things that you do with assessment and then intervention. That sounds very reasonable. Um, so one of the things that was not really, um, discussed in the CPG was baseline testing, but I know that a lot of places out there do this for their athletes, um, before the season starts. Mm -hmm. Was there any thought about including that in the CPG or no? Well, um, a lot of the baseline testing information um, is focused on diagnosis, you know, that you, you have that baseline information so that you can 
determine after someone's had an injury that they indeed have had a concussion. And since that was not part of our focus in the CPG, that's one reason why we don't include it. Um, the other thing that baseline testing is used for is the, you know, sort of making decisions about return to play. Um, and, um, you know, so it has a role that I think is um, certainly beneficial in that way. But our thought was that most physical therapists might be in a situation where they have no baseline information. And we, we don't want people to feel like somehow that is a huge disadvantage because we are accustomed all the time to working with people based on what their goals are without having baseline information on them you know, that's objective, um, and trying to return them to that goal level. Um, I think within the sports medicine world, there is, there's kind of increasing question about the value of that baseline testing approach. And this is not, you know, based on any study that I've read, but more just listening to people talk about it because it's really expensive to do and there are you know you test all these people and then a small number actually have a concussion so that you're using you know that information for that small number of people uh, my it's my opinion that over time we're going to have better tests that look at higher level of function um, that we could use, things that have normative values. Um, uh, and, you know, we have a lot of tests in PT that, that could be used to look at functional ability um, that are, you know, ways we could make judgments about whether someone's ready to go back to you know, their typical mobility activities and do that safely, right, for an older adult, for instance. Um, so I think the, um, the tests that have been devised for use in baseline testing are ones that um, if you don't have that baseline information, like the best, for instance, um, you know, which is a test where you're basically standing still with your eyes open and eyes closed and, you know, on a firm surface or on foam. Um, if you don't have baseline information, I'm not sure if that's a valuable test to use um, because, um, you know, that that test tends to be most sensitive in the first week after someone's had an injury. And, and I'm not sure that the majority of PTs are seeing people in that time frame. So I think we have better balanced tests that we could use um, that are more dynamic and are gonna get at the real functions that people need to be able to do because most people don't function standing on one foot on a piece of foam with their eyes closed. Um, you know, so, so I think that, you know, again, if we can get people to sort of flip their, you know, their idea that, oh, wait, I don't know anything about concussion, you know, that somehow there's some magic that is going on with this baseline testing approach and just 
think about their patients the way they do already, that there are certain functions that are going to be important, and we have we have some tools that can look at those things, um, and then you know, let's study that and get better evidence for what we do as PTs. Right. So I think what you're saying is like we should probably try to use the different outcome measures that we're or using to assess balance or um, that's, for example, one of them, you know, and then just see how that compares with patients with concussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, it's, um, that's part of the reason why we didn't have any really strong recommendations for particular outcome measures because it just hasn't been studied very well. Um, so, I mean, again, my opinion, I think we need to be using things like the HIMAT, you know, high level mobility assessment test where you have people walk and run and jump and, you know, um, hop and um, they're, you know, moving more. Um, or the community balance mobility scale that is, uh, has some higher level activities that are included. Um, or, you know, if you're talking about an older adult population, we've got the dynamic gait index and the functional gait assessment. Those are perfect ones to be thinking about for those, those kinds of patients. If, you if you're working with kids, we have all sorts of developmental tests that include balance, subscales, and that sort of thing. So those tests, to me, make a whole lot more sense to, to be used as a, as a way to judge how someone's doing. Um, if you've got the, a Birtex system or a, an old Neurocom system, you know, I think you should be using that because there are normative values there and you don't need a, uh, to have a baseline test on someone because there's norms you can look at. So, you know, it's um, sort of using existing tools for the context that you're looking at. Um, and then if, if we have somebody, so in our military population, we've been working on trying to develop um, much more challenging um, functional activities. So we have people, you know, run with a weapon and um, do combat roles and that sort of thing because um, if you don't have baseline information on someone and you're trying to make a decision about them going back to active duty, there are certain military maneuvers that people have to do in order to train you know, to be active duty. So, um, so we've been trying to work to fill that gap for that population, for instance. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I felt was particularly important when I was reviewing the CPG was how the discussion about how it's such a complex injury and yeah. it involves like musculoskeletal system and neurological and the vestibular system. And that um, in order to treat this effectively, kind of need to have either a provider or providers who are skilled in all of those areas. Um, is there certain, not specifically courses, but certain like things that a therapist who might be treating this patient population should be thinking of to make sure that they have the adequate skills necessary to treat um, patients with this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there are courses that are available that, 
you know, for, let's say you're someone who has more of a vestibular focus since that, you know, this is going to be a vestibular um, special interest group podcast and you feel really comfortable with that, but you don't feel so comfortable with working with the neck, right? Um, then either um, link up with someone that is, um, you know, in your health system because we know, you know, find somebody who's an OCS or, and a, a manual therapist fellow and, and say, you know, can we talk some, can we sort of cross train each other and, or, or have a referral back and forth. And maybe you work on the vestibular components. Um, and if, if there's something that's going on that's more cervical, then you refer um, someone to, you know, a person that has the, those credentials. Um, or you, you try and learn that, those skills yourself, at least at a, you know, a basic level to see if you can sort of manage most of the issues. But when someone has more uh, of a complex presentation, you, you go to referral. Um, and then vice versa for somebody who's coming at it more from a, an orthopedic standpoint um, to refer to somebody that has more skill in dealing with vestibular dysfunction. You know, because you could have central or peripheral or both um, kinds of vestibular problems that are happening with somebody who's had a concussion. Um, yeah, so trying to sort that. And, and in particular, you know, sort of thinking about the role that um, the cervical um, impairment might have um, in a dizziness complaint. And, you know, whether they have um, problems with joint position error testing and, and maybe that's that somatosensory ability is a component that really needs to be tapped with um, uh, intervention that's done. Right, like to make sure that if you don't know that much about it that you can have a referral to somebody who does. I think it's important right. for people to be aware of. Yeah, so it's kind of, you know, in some ways we're saying let, let's like try and get a little bit out of our specialty, you know, mindset um, and maybe have more cross training. But at the same time, you know, you can't, you can't know everything of, about, you know, what you do as a PT at a specialty level. So, you know, at what point do you make a referral and, and saying, you know, that's okay. Um, that, that sometimes that might be the best thing to do. Right. So a lot of patients post-concussion seem to have sleep disturbance. Was there any recommendations on how a PT can help to manage this? Um, well, I think that, um, you know, there certainly are folks in our profession that are, um, talking about that and, you know, publishing about that. Um, I don't think there's great evidence for a PT's role in that to, um, you know, that we could sort of build on for, um, for the CPG. But we do talk about the importance really of a couple things that, that probably need, um, if, if you could deal with those problems, early on, if someone has headache that requires some sort of um, uh, medical management, you know, especially if they have migraine, you know, 
a migraine type presentation and when we talk about the um, you know trying to figure out what the headache type sounds like so that you can decide whether you think there might be a cervical component that is contributing to it somehow where perhaps PT would be helpful um, but if it's if you know if it's migraine it's something that um, might need some medical management then that's one thing that really you know you want to make sure you've got a good uh, physician partner to be able to deal with that. Um, and then sleep is the other thing. If someone has really some significant sleep problems going on, then trying to get at why that might be, if it's a pain problem, you know, because they, they have, you know, headache that is, um, is, is causing issues. If it's a post-traumatic stress problem that is, is um, contributing to um, sleep dysfunction somehow, um, you know, that that there may be need for referral to deal with um, with some of you know potential psychological issues. Someone has anxiety or depression that might be contributing to it. You know, so it, so I think to some degree it depends on why you think the sleep problem is happening and whether that's something we could deal with just by talking about basic things related to sleep hygiene and um, the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation um, CPG. Um, for you know, people with persist, more persistent um, symptoms post-concussion has some really good resources that are on their site that you could um, you could go to. So you know, we again didn't review literature specifically about sleep and concussion as part of our lit review process. So we're just trying to point to some available resources instead. There's some good um, resources for military providers related to sleep um, you know so um, I think there's some things that are out there that that could um, could be used by therapists um, dependent on you know who they link with in their community and if if there's somebody who's good to refer to then by all means you could do that but if there's not then you know, you may just need to do some things that are sort of educational about sleep hygiene and trying to get people to really think about that as an important factor um, that could really help the recovery a lot. So, you know, if you have headache and you have sleep problems, you know, those those two things together could could cause more issues with cognitive function, with um, uh, you know, psychological factors, you know, so it's really important to try and deal with those early in the process. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's not that we didn't think it was important. It's just we had to sort of draw our line some, somewhere. Because <laughs> um, then it would have taken 10 years to, you know, <laughs> to, to get the CPG ready to publish. <laughs> We were ready. We had um, two babies born, you know, in the process of, of doing the CPG, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, so. So from a, from a particular like vestibular standpoint, is there um, any areas that you think like re further research um, in this area should be focused on to help like guide the revision of the next CPG? I do, yeah, I think, um, I mean, there, you know, there is some, some literature, you know, work that Matt Scherer did when he did his dissertation, and I think there's some other folks that have started to try and look at central versus peripheral um, with concussion, you know, what's the, 
how does that really play out? Um, and, and then the other thing that I think is not well articulated in the literature at all is if um, people post-concussion are, you know, how much is their emotion sensitivity problem and what um, kinds of interventions might be appropriate for that. I think those are things that people are doing, but I just don't know that it has been studied very well to, you know, to provide that evidence that would give you a, you know, really strong evidence statement. Um, we also don't have great information about when to initiate, you know, vestibular related intervention and, you know, on kind of what frequency does that make sense? Um, you know, so there's a lot that we weren't able to say about, about vestibular rehab specifically. Um, so, you know, whatever we can learn in the, in the next several years to inform a revision about, you know, people with concussion that have vestibular complaints, you know, what does that look like? What is, you know, best practice? Um, what frequency does it happen and how long does it, uh, does a, you know, intervention typically take? I think those are things that we just don't have, we don't have great information about yet. Okay, no, that's, that's very helpful. Um, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else you can think of that would be important that we didn't touch upon? Um, I, you know, I think, I think we've covered things fairly well. There is, uh, you know, there will be some, some efforts made to um, uh, come up with some kind of implementation and translation um, approaches to use um, CPG information. I think that we didn't talk specifically about the, um, the decision trees that are in there. And I think that um, we really um, owe a lot to Katie Quatman Yates, who um, was on the CPG, um, because she helped us build those, you know, through this iterative process. And I hope those things are helpful where, um, you know, one of the things that we, we emphasized in the, um, in the decision trees is to try and make sure that you, um, you look at neck before you start to do vestibular exam, uh, because, you know, if somebody has neck pain, then, um, you know, so much of what is necessary to, to do a good vestibular exam involves moving the neck. So, you know, making sure that that you um, you look at that to start with um, before you dive into vestibular um, assessment, um, so that you're not, um, you know, misinterpreting responses that are really coming from a cervical issue. Uh, so, okay, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to discuss this with us and to um, give it to all our listeners. Yeah, I'm happy to, you know, I've been a neurosection person for such a long time that um, anything we can do to serve the membership is, uh, or the academy, I guess is what I should yeah. say now. Um, you know, we're happy to do that. It's such a great group. Um, and 
we are doing really good things to move our specialty area forward. So I'm happy to, to offer my time that way. Well, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks. Okay.